Hey, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover an article that's being released ahead of print in obstetrics and gynecology from the American College of OBGYN. In this current commentary, the question is raised. Now that we know that low-dose aspirin has benefits for the reduction of preeclampsia among a wider patient population, why don't we adopt universal aspirin for preeclampsia prevention? In this podcast, we'll summarize this current commentary, soon to be in print. In July of 2018, with committee opinion number 743, the American College of OBGYN made guidelines for aspirin prophylaxis for preeclampsia prevention, and they were a departure from prior, more stringent guidelines and extended the eligibility for aspirin prophylaxis to a larger population of pregnant women in the United States. This document replaced previous ACOG recommendations that limited aspirin prophylaxis to women only with a history of preeclampsia in multiple prior pregnancies or who had a history of an early preterm delivery due to preeclampsia. Now, under these prior, more stringent guidelines, fewer than 1% of pregnant women in the U.S. actually qualified for aspirin prophylaxis. The American College of OBGYN's new recommendations from 2018 actually incorporated guidance from the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force that advocates for more widespread aspirin use for preeclampsia prevention. Now, it's now been calculated that use of these more liberal guidelines from the college could qualify women up to 23% versus the prior 1% of pregnant women who would now qualify for aspirin preeclampsia prevention. All right, now look, before we get into the specifics of this new argument about universal low-dose aspirin for preeclampsia prevention, let's remind ourselves of some key notes from the 2018 ACOG Committee Opinion, which was number 743 on the use of low-dose aspirin during pregnancy. In other words, let's review when we should and should not recommend this therapy. According to the college, low-dose aspirin, which is defined as 81 to 150 milligrams per day, this type of prophylaxis is recommended in women at high risk of preeclampsia, and the therapy should be initiated between 12 and 28 weeks, but optimally should be done before 16 weeks of gestation and continued all the way until delivery. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis should be considered for women with more than one of several moderate risk factors for preeclampsia, and we'll cover those in just a moment. The college made it clear that low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended solely for the indication of prior unexplained stillbirth in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia, nor is it recommended for the prevention of fetal growth restriction in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia. Similarly, it's not recommended for the prevention of preterm birth or for the prevention of early pregnancy loss, according to the committee opinion. Before we review this risk stratification of moderate risk factors and high risk factors for women who would qualify for low-dose aspirin prophylaxis based on this risk stratification scheme, let's review the pathophysiology or the mechanism of action of aspirin. 
Remember that aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that works primarily through its inhibition of two cyclooxygenase isoenzymes, COX-1 and COX-2. Both of these are necessary for prostaglandin biosynthesis. Remember that COX-1 isoform is present in the vascular endothelium and it regulates the production of prostacyclin and thromboxin A2 prostaglandins with opposing regulatory functions on the vascular homeostatic mechanism and platelet function. Remember that prostacyclin is a potent vasodilator and inhibitor of platelet aggregation, whereas thromboxane A2 is a potent vasoconstrictor and it actually promotes platelet aggregation. Now, unlike COX-1 that's present on the vascular endothelium, the COX-2 isoform is inducible and expressed almost exclusively following exposure to cytokines or other inflammatory mediators. Now, the effect of aspirin on COX-dependent prostaglandin synthesis is dose-dependent. Now, at the lower dosages that we're talking about here, which is about 60 to 150 milligrams a day, aspirin irreversibly acetylates COX-1 resulting in decreased platelet synthesis of thromboxane A2 without affecting vascular wall production of prostacyclin. All right, so it is this preferential imbalance of prostacyclin over thromboxane A2 production that is the theoretical backing behind the preeclampsia prevention mechanism. Now, when we come back, let's cover the clinical risk assessment for low-dose aspirin use in pregnant women according to the ACOG 2018 committee opinion, which places women into two categories, moderate and high, and we'll cover these coming up next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we get into the stance and the push and the argument for universal adoption of low-dose aspirin for all pregnant women, let's review the 2018 ACOG risk stratification scheme for adoption of low-dose aspirin in pregnancy. Remember, according to the college, the dose is 81 milligrams per day for preeclampsia prevention. According to the college, women who were designated as low-risk did not require low-dose aspirin prophylaxis. These were women with previous uncomplicated full-term deliveries. The moderate classification had women with one or more of the following risk factors for whom low-dose aspirin should be considered. These risk factors were nulliparity obesity with a BMI greater than 30, family history of preeclampsia in the mother or the sister, being African-American or low socioeconomic status, being advanced maternal age, which was age 35 years or older, having a personal history of low birth weight or small for gestational age, or a previous adverse pregnancy outcome, 
or having a prior pregnancy more than 10 years ago. Again, women with one or more of these risk factors were termed to be moderate risk and low-dose aspirin should be considered. Now, for women deemed high risk, only one of these next characteristics were required in order for low-dose aspirin to be recommended. Here are the risk factors that will place a woman at high risk. A history of preeclampsia, especially when accompanied by an adverse outcome. Multifetal gestation. Chronic hypertension. Type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Renal disease or autoimmune diseases, including antiphospholipid syndrome or systemic lupus erythematosus. All right, now remember that in women with a low classification, no aspirin was recommended, one or more moderate risk factors than the consideration for low-dose aspirin was in place, and for women with just one high risk factor, then it was recommended that low-dose aspirin be initiated. Okay, now that we've laid that foundation, here's where it gets interesting. In the soon-to-be-published current commentary by Nina Ayala and Dwight Rouse, who are making the argument for a universal adoption of low-dose aspirin, they call into question the effectiveness of a risk-factor-based system, with some good points being made. For example, before adoption of universal screening for gestational diabetes, screening was done based on risk factors. Screening predicated on risk factor assessment for gestational diabetes, however, proved ineffective owing to poor physician compliance. Now, in one study, only 31% of patients whose risk profiles qualified them for evaluation for gestational diabetes, only 31% were screened. In another study, only 61% of eligible women were screened. Remember, this is before the universal adoption of universal screening for gestational diabetes. Now, the argument against a risk factor type of system doesn't just stop with diabetes screening and pregnancy. They also call to attention the issue of Group B strep. Remember, right now, the college and the CDC recommend a culture-based GBS protocol between 35 and 37 weeks, defaulting only to risk factors when the GBS culture is not available. Implementation of risk-based antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent early-onset neonatal group B strep infection did prove similarly ineffectual. Prior to the move towards universal GBS screening, it had been published that about 30% of patients whose risk profiles actually indicated antibiotic prophylaxis did not actually receive it. So the reality is this. Outside of the setting of clinical research, effective implementation of risk-based approaches consistently falls short. Ah, so there is the push from risk-based screening to universal adoption of aspirin. Now, the primary concern with transitioning to universal aspirin prophylaxis is that it may unnecessarily expose women and their fetuses at low risk for preeclampsia to the cost, pill burden, and potential short-term and long-term adverse effects of the drug. Notably absent, however, from the new ACOG recommendations are two fundamental quantitative considerations. First, given the proven safety of aspirin, what is an acceptable number needed to treat to prevent one case of preeclampsia? And with aspirin's low cost, which is about $5 per pregnancy, and favorable low-risk profile, with more than 20,000 pregnant women having been randomized to aspirin in clinical trials without demonstrable harm, an acceptable number needed to treat would be quite large. 
Now, arguably, it would be at least 500, which is the number needed to treat to prevent one case of preeclampsia in even the lowest risk women. Now, remember, there are women who shouldn't use aspirin in pregnancy. Those are women with a platelet aggregation disorder, severe liver dysfunction, or a history of gastrointestinal ulcer. These women should not use low-dose prophylactic aspirin. Now, universal prophylaxis in pregnancy is not without precedent. Remember that folic acid supplementation for the prevention of neural tube defect was studied first in high-risk women and found to significantly lower the recurrence of neural tube defects from about 3.5% down to 1%. This led the CDC to recommend folic acid supplementation in all reproductive age women regardless of their risk status and prompted the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to go further and mandate folate fortification of multiple cereal and grain products. So this intervention was extended not only to pregnant women, but also to a significant population of people, men, women above childbearing age, and those who stand to receive no personal benefit because the epidemiological benefit was greater with folate supplementation. All right, so as you wrap up the podcast, this is an interesting topic. In 2018, remember, the college expanded the possible use of low-dose aspirin for prevention of preeclampsia based on the moderate and the high-risk classification scheme. But now, as the current commentary has shown, with the potential benefit and low risk of low-dose aspirin, perhaps the most benefit would be with universal adoption of all women in pregnancy. According to these authors, it is now time to employ a stronger stance to push towards global utilization of this safe and beneficial prevention strategy for a disease with significant morbidity and for which no other means of prevention is available. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. (music) 